0: Our MBA podcast purpose is to help existing business owners grow their companies past the $10 million in revenue per year benchmark. Here is your host, Stephen Helastic. Welcome everyone. My name is Stephen Helastic, and I am co-founder of Financing Solutions. Financing Solutions provides easy-to-set up lines of credit for small businesses, and I will be your host for today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. If, if you are interested in getting a business line of credit, please feel free to visit our website at FSCreditLine.com. That's F-S as in Financing Solutions, CreditLine.com. And over the last 25 years, I've built six companies in the $5 million to $25 million range, including two companies on the Inc. 500 fastest growing And I can tell you uh, over those 25 years, I almost always had a business line of credit in place uh, just in case of emergencies. And that's the reason why we started uh, Financing Solutions 10 years ago was because we really felt that it was really a good idea for every business owner to have a line of credit in place. Uh, On a personal basis, I love learning from people like today's guests, and uh, especially when they have lots of experience. And today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Lindsay Pollock, uh, Pollock, I'm sorry, from, uh, from her own company. Uh, Lindsay is a New York Times bestselling author and a leading career and workplace expert. She is the author of four career and workplace advice books, including her latest, Recalculating, Navigating Your Career Through the Changing World of Work. Her speaking audiences and consulting clients have included more than 250 corporations, law firms, conferences, and universities. For six years, she served as an official ambassador for LinkedIn, and Lindsay's advice and opinions have appeared in such media outlets as the Today Show, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, and NPR. Lindsay is a graduate of Yale University and is based out of New York City. Lindsay, welcome to today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You know, I I, I right off the bat know that this uh, uh, podcast could last two hours because I have such an interest in what, you know, all the topics that you've covered in the past. Uh, Today, we're going to get a little bit more into how to lead and succeed in the multi generational workplace. but I, I, I think I, I don't know why I just actually find it fascinating um, how to deal with people, and uh, you've really done that your whole career, haven't you?
1: You know, it's funny. I'm like you. I love to talk to people and ask them questions about their careers and their work lives. And really, my interest in this whole topic started from my own struggles to figure out how to build my career in my 20s and. I follow my own curiosity and try to learn from people who are really good at these things. But I, I think you're right. There's a, a certain level of know-how that goes into business with the work itself, but so much of life and business is about people and relationships. And so it always keeps coming back to that topic.
0: Yeah. I, and I, I think we all know that uh, as much as we want to try to get away from people uh, in business, having employees, <laughs> right. That they, they are really what makes a company work right
1: yeah, and you know I have a very small company. I, I am a sole proprietor, but I have a team of vendors, I have a virtual assistant. I have a you know bookkeeper who's been with me for a decade. so even when you are on your own, nothing happens without the help and, and work of other people. And I also think one of the dangers of being an entrepreneur sometimes is loneliness or disconnection. So I think having a community particularly during the pandemic has been really important to my success and the success of many people I've spoken to.
0: Yeah. I mean, I agree. When I, when I, um, my business partner and I started financing solutions, our number one criteria was as little employees as possible. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it was an area that we, well, I should say before we started it, when we were looking at businesses, one of the criteria was as little employees as we, as we could, um, not because we don't like people. Um, honestly, it's just the opposite, but, uh, you know, uh, so let, let's get into the topic: how to lead and succeed in a multi generational workplace. So first, when we defi- what what would how would we define multi generational workplace?
1: So it's a really interesting moment for this topic. We've always had multiple generations in the workplace. We have multiple generations in every family, right? This is a, a normal concept. What's different now that I don't think many people realize is we've gone from having Basically, three generations in the workplace, think back to the 80s or 90s. We had the traditionalist, the World War II generation, about 70% of whom had a pension. So they would retire at what we considered traditional age, 60, 62, 65. You the baby boomers, the largest generation ever in American history, have been dominant for so long. My generation, Generation X, we came up kind of as the newbies in that world starting the late 80s, early 90s. And it was sort of people at the beginning, middle, and end of their careers. It was kind of very clean. What's happened over the past 20, 25 years or so is not that young people haven't continued to come in. Millennials started to come in in droves. Now we have Generation Z. What's changed is that older people are continuing to work into their 60s, into their 70s. We have more Americans age 85 and older in the workplace. People are living longer, healthier lives. A lot of work is not as physical as it used to be so people can continue to work. And many baby boomers want to continue to work. They enjoy it. It gives them satisfaction. So we've gone from three generations to five in the past couple of decades because people are working longer than ever before. So what have
0: you noticed as the biggest differentiator to working in a environment where there are multi-generational employees there?
1: I think there are two topics that come up a lot. One is communication which is, of course, technology has changed so much that a lot of young people come into a workplace and they've never really had to answer a phone in a professional way. They learned email as a six-year-old, whereas I had my first email account in college. So the way we use technology, how formal we are, which technologies we choose to use, which communication styles um, is a, a big differentiator. And I'm really clear it's not good or bad, better or worse. They're just different ways of communicating, almost like we speak a different language. And I think the second really big factor where I think generations are important is to think about what people's expectations are when they start to work with you, whether as a client, as a customer, as an employee, as a stakeholder. You know, for example, someone who started their career during COVID is going to expect a certain level of flexibility because that's how they started. That was normalized for them. Uh, a woman entering financial services in 1965 is going to have very different expectations about how many women will be in leadership mentoring her than a woman who enters today. Again, it's not good or bad, better or worse. It, it's almost like they're cultural differences, that the era in which you're born, even here in the United States, is almost a different country with some different cultural practices, some different cultural norms, some different languages um, than we have in other times. It's very important that they're not perceived as... Um, you know, in any way judged, but just is different. And if we want to work with different kinds of people, we have to sometimes adapt our own style to make that successful.
0: Yeah. I think the thing that comes to my mind is I I think people are so quick to, uh, I don't want to say judge. I'm trying to think of the right word, but if you're an older person, you hear someone answering the phone inappropriately, you're, you're, you're like, ugh. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you're a younger person and you hear the way someone, maybe an older person talks toward, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, lesbian, gay uh, uh, people, you, you could like, oh, you know, so inappropriate. Right. And I don't think they I think we need to take a step back on both sides and just listen and 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 not pass judgment. And you know, I would see, I would see, we're training to make each other aware of that would go a long way. Have, I mean, that's probably why your books are so valued, right? Is that a, is that a fair?
1: Yeah, that's the work that I do. I, I come in and work with organizations at all levels, and I actually think it's really important to have multiple generations in the room together to have these conversations. And a quotation that I like to share, which I think gets down to what you're talking about. Um, is an old Voltaire line. Common sense is not so common. <laughs> the reason we get so offended is because I think it's common sense to accept people, uh, for their LGBTQ identity. That has been normalized for me. You know, young people, there's very little stigma, for example, against talking about mental illness, right? These are somewhat normalized concepts. And so if you come of age in this era, you talk about it all the time. My 10 year old asks people what their pronouns are for someone in their seventies or eighties. They might need a little bit of information or education about why that is common practice today. What's common back in 1965 is not common now. And it doesn't mean that a young person cannot be taught how to answer a phone in a professional way. Of course they can. And it doesn't mean that a 99-year-old can't be taught how to use TikTok. Of course they can. But it might take a little longer. And we need to have that um, patience, I think, to say, okay, this is not something that you know. We're going to teach it to you and talk about it. and I think you're right. if we take the judgment of that away and not say, "How stupid are you not to know to use your pronouns or how dumb are you not to be able to answer a phone, if we can take that away and say, "Oh, you don't know how to do that, I'd be happy to teach you. And I think the critical piece too is, why is it important? Why do we care that a young person answers the phone of our office, you know in a proper way? Why? do we care that an older person uses their pronouns? And if we explain the reasoning behind it, often people are much more willing to learn something different than they would be. If we say, you know, you're stupid for not knowing that.
0: Yeah. I, and I, it's funny. You said something that exactly, I was going to say the, ex- I have an example that it wasn't work related, but so I have a, a good friend and she used to be a school teacher and, um, uh, she, she's young. Just- she's 44. And, uh, young compared to me. So 44. (laughs) And, uh, and so, you know, she said to me, um, she couldn't believe that the school system, she hasn't been teaching in a while, that school system isn't going to celebrate that do the things that they do for the kids from for Mother's Day, you know, usually when they have a project, right. And, and so my first reaction to her was, well, why? Why? Why is the school not doing that? I mean, these are people who really, the teachers really care about kids and families and they have families themselves. There must be a good reason and, and we don't know it. Right. And I wasn't passing a judgment to, I think it's a good or bad thing. And then I talked to my, uh, my, my niece who's a school teacher. And she said, because there are so many kids, uh, in the classroom who, uh, whose family dynamics are not great. And uh, you're forcing them into doing something. Uh, Some of them don't have mothers, some of them have mothers that are abusive, uh, you know, surprisingly, right. Um, And so that now when I heard that, I was like, Oh, yeah, that Mm kind of makes sense. Um, So I it was because I, I asked why.
1: I love that. Um, One of the the key teachings that I offer in my book, The Remix, and in my trainings is, what if you assumed the best intentions? What if you assumed when someone makes a choice that you question, that they did it for the right reasons? So I'll give you an example. Um, During the pandemic, I worked with a baby boomer manager who had very young employees, uh, mostly Generation Z. And when the pandemic started, she picked up the phone and called the people who reported to her to check on them and see how they were doing. And a lot of them didn't answer and she would either leave a voicemail or, you know, send an email, hey, I called you, you know, to check on you. And most of them emailed her in response. And she was sort of offended and said, well, I called them, I I chose to pick up the phone and call them, I wanted to hear their voices, I wanted to know I cared, why would they email me back? And she sort of immediately took offense and judged them for not doing it. And so I suggested that she ask them, you know, I'm just curious why you answered my phone call with an email. And what every single one of them said was, I know how busy you are. I know how stressful this pandemic is. I know you have kids and, and you're always busy. I didn't want to bother you by calling you back. That's a very thoughtful reason that yeah. they chose not to. So. You can, I think two things. One is don't immediately assume the worst, right? Like I always say, when, when people dress inappropriately for work, I really don't think anyone looks in the mirror in the morning and says, how can I look as inappropriate as possible? You know, I think they're trying to do the right thing. They just maybe miss the mark according to your judgment. So number one, assume the best intention. And number two, if there is a particular communication style you want or a particular type of dress or level of formality, tell people that. Don't assume these sort of unwritten rules. Well, if I call you, you call me back. That's not necessarily common sense. So you can say, you know, Hey, Stephen, I, I really wanted to hear your voice. I'd love it if you could give me a call back and be explicit in your expectations. So people don't let you down without knowing it.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing is, uh, uh, statistically, um, it's something I learned the other day. Now this isn't mother related, but one out of every 11, uh, children by before they're 18 will lose a, uh, a mother, a father oh. or a brother or wow. sister. So the statistics, you know, uh, are, are there, you know? And so, yeah. So I think that's, it goes back to the thing about mothers, you know, mother day. So uh, anyway, I got off the topic a little bit. So yeah. when you're speaking to, uh, business leaders, uh, and, uh, the business owners. Okay. And, and, uh, what do you hear most when it comes to issues that they have that they're concerned with in multi-generational workforces?
1: So um two sides of the issue. One is with younger employees. I think there's a real frustration that younger employees tend to not stay as long as some of the entrepreneurs want them to. Or they'll say, I love it here. My job is great. You treat me really well, you pay me well, I'm gonna go and try something different, you know, that <laughs> you can even do everything right. And there is a sense now that movement is positive, that um, exploration is exciting, that loyalty is not necessarily the most important factor of career success. There's very little stigma for changing jobs. I actually hear a lot of young people, particularly Gen Zs, who are about 26 years old and younger, say, you know, I don't want to stay somewhere too long. I don't want people to think I, I wasn't coachable you know, that I wasn't good enough to leave. So I think whereas we might as a Gen Xer, I might have said, "Wow, 20 years at the same company, that's so impressive. A young person might say, what, what was wrong with you that, you know, you didn't have any other opportunities in 20 years. So I think longevity of career is one uh, issue. On the other side, I see a lot of concerns about ageism, that there are people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, who are vital and smart and have a lot to contribute. And their organization will say, well, we figured you were kind of coasting at that point, or we didn't think you wanted training, or we didn't think you wanted a promotion. I figure you're close to retirement. And you have people who might want to work another 20 years and have so much to offer, who are not really being considered for those opportunities. So I I think there's ageism uh, and stereotyping on, on both sides of the equation. So don't make an assumption that a young person. You know, doesn't want to uh, grow or expand or or be considered for leadership, and don't make the same assumption about older people either.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and so, what do you what do you think when when what what's been the reaction when uh, employees have gone through? I, I assume you train, you do the yes. training. So, what has been the reaction after they've gone through the training?
1: So there are a couple of things I tried to be conceptual, but also give people a toolkit. So conceptually, I think a lot of people say, I never thought about it. You know, I am remembering, and I think you see this with diversity training as well. You mentioned um, sexual orientation to say, I never thought about it. You know, so it sort of opened people's eyes. Maybe I have been discriminating against older employees because I've made assumptions about them, you know? And so I think there's, there's that um, self-awareness piece, which is always valuable, On the toolkit side, I think it's really important to give people strategies to kind of get out of their head and and get into their, their to-do list. And one of which is always ask people how they want to communicate, right? So if you and I are going to work on a project, I'll say, what's the best time of day to reach you? Or do you prefer email or phone calls? Do you like camera on or camera off? You know, are there any times of day that you have, you know, family obligations or, or exercise or something you like to do? Never assuming that other people work in the same style you do. Another quick tip um, that I give in training is whenever you have a planning committee or you're making big decisions, have every uh, generational view represented. So if you're on the board of a nonprofit and you're planning your fundraiser, don't have everybody be 50 plus, right? If you want to attract people of different ages, have people of different ages sharing their voice. So I try to mix the conceptual with the action.
0: Well, what has been the reaction of people um, that, um, so they go through the training. Is there typically a fall of training a couple of months later or no?
1: Depends on the organization. One of the things um, that a lot of companies I work with do is they will somehow or somewhat separate the junior employees from the senior. And what we tend to do in that situation is one group gets the training first and there's a little bit of buzz in the air, right? So the maybe millennials get training and are talking to their bosses and the bosses come in a couple of weeks later and say, oh, you know, I wanted to hear what this is all about. So I, I really enjoy that sometimes. Some companies I work with will offer kind of my signature program on the multi-generational workplace maybe four times a year. And so, again, it builds a little buzz. People hear the terminology being used. It reminds me of when we used to do a lot of Myers-Briggs training and people would sort of use, hey, I'm an ENFJ, and that would spark other people to wonder what that meant. Um, so it, it spreads the, the time. I also think that um, when you add this as a topic to diversity, equity, and inclusion training, Um, The idea of intersectionality that we need training on gender uh, bias, potential gender bias and uh race and ethnicity, sexual orientation, disability, veteran status, it sort of adds to people's awareness over time. And so if you build on a topic of gender and then add in generation or start with generation and then talk about Um, unconscious bias against other topics, it can kind of build on it. So um, I see it as a kind of a a building, uh, a scaffolding that we keep adding to um, as opposed to kind of a a straight line of training. Does that make sense? It does. What
0: what do you think? Is there equal amount? So if you have someone who's very set in their ways and they're they're older um, and they look at this and they say, uh, I can't believe I have to do training in this. Uh, why can't people just do their jobs? Uh, you know, I I'll say what I'm going to say, and then and then you have on the opposite side a young person who you know we would like to think that younger people are more adaptable, but then they look at the older person and say. Oh, he's an old fogey and he's set in his way. Do you you think there's equal amount of people on either side that have uh, attitudes that need to be adjusted?
1: I do. And I think one of the interesting perspectives that comes up in my training, and I raise it if it doesn't, is... We're all an expert on this from families. I mean, it's like classic to say, oh, dad, you know, you're so old fashioned. And the dad to say, I don't understand your music, you know. So I, I think we all kind of get from that perspective that both sides have a responsibility here and, and tend to fall into stereotypes. But a, a phrase or a term that I really like to use that seems to resonate even with people who are skeptical um, is a term coined by a technology entrepreneur named Gina Pell, P-E-L-L, she calls it being a perennial. And a perennial, she says, is somebody who knows their history and keeps up with the times. And I think people of all ages respect that combination, right? That it's it, it's up to young people to learn their history. And it's up to older people to keep up with the times. And, and one of the things I say that tends to resonate is... You know, what would you say as an entrepreneur if I said, wow, you know, you're so successful. You haven't changed a single thing you've done in your business for 50 years. Like that's not good, right? I, I don't so know how to I, be
0: successful, yeah, honestly. So
1: I, I think we all kind of get that, right? Know your history and keep up with the times. And I think that really resonates with people.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, have you seen situations where, well, I, have you been brought on as a coach because someone really is serious has some serious problems but they're a valuable employee.
1: Yes. Wow. And I will tell you
0: how's that my, conversation go initially?
1: Well, I'll tell you what I think and I and I'm often pretty um vocal about this is 99% of the time it's not a generational issue, it's an interpersonal issue. It's an EQ issue, right? Many people who are very good managers, let's say people managers, are good at managing people of all generations. So whether you call it millennial management or multi-generational management, it doesn't matter. They're good at judging people as individuals, as learning people's motivations, at uh, developing a a clear mission and vision that people want to follow. Right, And that is both a very good human management strategy and it's also a very good multi-generational management strategy. What I find when I'm brought in to coach someone who is, quote, not good at managing millennials or, you know, seems ageist, is they're just not good at managing people. And they tend to feel that talking about it generationally is almost a cover for not being a very good manager, right? Of saying like, oh, in my day, they just threw us in the deep end. Why can't you guys figure stuff out, right? So For example, I hear that argument a lot, you know, nobody, nobody cobbled me, nobody cared about me. And my answer is, well, times have changed. Just as if I sent you on business to Dubai, you would understand that you're really, really good at what you do, but you might have to learn a couple of new tricks and and etiquette pieces because it's a different culture. And so what I say is you can do what you do. You can believe that the best way to train somebody is to throw them in the deep end. What I ask of you is in the millennial world, in the millennial language, just saying, hey, I'm throwing you in the deep end and giving them that tiny bit of information is a culturally specific way to manage them better. So go ahead and throw them in the deep end, but tell them that's what you're doing. So I'm not asking you to change who you are, what you believe in, but I am asking you to take on the nuance that there are some cultural differences because a young person starting out in finance today is really doing that in a different world than perhaps you did 30 years ago. So, you know, sometimes the the generational piece is um, less about the actual specifics of the generations and more about someone who just doesn't want to change.
0: Uh, When you come in as a coach, has the outcome mostly always been good?
1: I mean, it depends if a person is willing to change. You know, I think anyone who engages in any kind of coaching or, or therapy even knows that the person has to be willing. Um, And I I find that 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 is really the key factor. And and I do think the tools and tactics have something to do with it. Um, One of the things that I like to tell people that I coach is tell people you're being coached, right? Tell the people on your team that you're doing this, that you're taking on this challenge. And sometimes that vulnerability um, is a really important first step to them being willing to make change. But but certainly the person has to do it. No coach can work magic unless their client is willing.
0: What do you do when you have the person who's hiring you? Let's say it's a business owner and um and their their role model behavior on this subject is pretty atrocious.
1: You know, it's funny, I get the question a lot. This just happened I was at an Investment Bank uh, at an offsite, and somebody said, "You know, I get why I need to behave differently with the people I manage, but what about the people who are senior and manage me? You know, they're not in this room. they're not here listening." there are people who are very senior and very successful who don't want to change, right? No matter what it is. Um, I think the trick is twofold. One is to find advocates in senior leadership. If there's one person who really gets this and is willing to change, and you saw this with a lot of companies and they're, um, their view towards women. You know, there'd be one executive who had a daughter, right, who was really successful, and they changed a lot. So I think finding advocates in senior leadership, even if it's not the business owner themselves, uh, can be valuable. The second is I've seen some organizations only change because people left. People said, I, I'm not willing to work here if that is going to be the attitude of leadership, and that has consequences. So um, I think, you know, change or die is is sort of dramatic. But I think we've seen that with a lot of organizations, if you have a huge exodus of women or a huge exodus of young people, I think you're going to see it with com- some companies that are not being flexible at all. I'm not saying you have to let everybody work remotely forever. But if you're not allowing any flexibility, I think you're going to lose a lot of good talent. And that's making people stand up and and take notice. So Um, you know, again, you can't always make people change, but, but, um, if you're willing and believe in it enough to leave, if it doesn't happen, I I think sometimes that's unfortunately the only way that people wake up.
0: So let's say you're a small business owner. I I can't afford, uh, Lindsay to come, (laughs) have you come on board, uh, to teach my staff. Uh, what, what would you recommend?
1: So one of the things I recommend is to have the young people on your team talk to you, have them sit in on some meetings, you know, have a round robin of training where each someone from each generation teaches the team on a topic that they're interested in, have the youngest person on your team teach you how to use TikTok, have the oldest person on your team talk about the history of your industry, right? I think internal training can be really powerful. Another really simple tip is I love the idea of reverse mentoring, which is, let's say uh, you're 20 years older than I am and you've been mentoring me, turn it around one day and have me mentor you, right? Fabrizio Freda, who's the CEO of Estee Lauder, all of his top executives have uh, junior employees who are their reverse mentors. And once a quarter, the reverse mentors, the junior people take the senior executives shopping for makeup. Because they want to know how young people are shopping for makeup. It might be different than they did. And what could be more important if you're an executive at S. a Lauder companies than doing that? So uh, one manager I know every week says to the young people on his team, show me a new app that you're using, right? Show me something that you're doing. So I think multi-generational committees, internal training on any topic, really, and this idea of reverse mentoring are really powerful ways to tap into the wisdom of the people you already know, as opposed to bringing in an external person.
0: Well, it's all really great advice. Uh, well, listen, that's uh really kind of all the time we have today. I'd like to very much thank Lindsay from coming on to today's podcast. And if you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend, um, and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting up. Um, and please also, if you like today's podcast or any of the other ones, uh, that we've had, please give us a review. It really helps us get the word out. The not the Entrepreneur MBA podcast has become extremely popular and um, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, it's because great guests like we have, like Lindsay, um, And also if you're looking for a line of credit, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at fscreditline.com. That's FS, that's in financing solutions, creditline.com. Lindsay, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that?
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm very active on LinkedIn and very happy to connect with any listeners. I also have uh, information on my website at lindsaypollack.com, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, P-O-L-L-A-K.
0: Very good. And so I think, you know, the thing that I kind of uh, summarized today, uh, you know, I mean, I've I'm 57 years old. I started my career at Xerox uh, for the first eight and a half years of my career. Um, You know, and I was lucky enough when I worked for Xerox to get in some incredible training. Xerox was the Google of its day, and uh, it was really ahead of its time when it came to um, the training that it provided its employees. And employees really uh, like it, they like it when a company is investing. And I think this topic of multi-generational workplace, um, if leaders address it um, and talk about it, I think it could only make your, your company and your workforce happier. So, uh, you know, it's a, the a thought for today and something for everyone to kind of consider. I think anytime you have a learning company, you are going to benefit from that in the long run. Uh, so everybody, have a fantastic day. Keep learning. Keep getting better. Keep making your 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 uh, staff uh, better as well. Have a great day.